Let's stay standing a moment and pray, if you would, with me. God, I want to thank you so much for that picture of you. and How comforting it is for me personally. As my prayer would be that way for every person here who's in your loving arms and has been forgiven by you and is in relationship with you. And Lord, I just pray today for everyone who they think about a God who chases them down it actually causes fear that today God you would show yourself to them and that they'd be able to see that you're not chasing us down because you're angry but because you're relentless in the love that you want us to know that you want to set us free you want us to be free 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 no shackles holding us back, no chains that hold us captive, no residue that is over us that causes us to feel like we're not acceptable or lovable. God, I pray today that we would know you, we'd experience you today, and that we would have freedom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. I appreciate you being here today so much, and I really look forward to today and our time together as we get to have communion in just a little bit, and we get to be focused today on how to release our failure. And uh, I, you know, someone says, well, shouldn't it be plural? I was like, well, it's just one at a time. <laughs> so it's the way it works. And so we want to be able to uh, release those to him. And so... I'm Ron. I want to welcome you. I get to be one of the pastors here. It's one of my privileges and joys, and I just want to welcome all of you. We're in the next to the last week of our series on King David, and I've just been so excited about this series and just loved it all the way through this and have really been longing and looking forward to today and what I anticipate can happen in us as a church and me as a person and you as well as an individual. So I was reading the other day, and I read an account uh, about a person who's a domain hoarder. You ever heard of domain hoarders? What they do is they make it a business, is they go out and they they buy up all the domain names that they can with hopes that at a certain point, a company or organization will want that domain name, and then they'll sell it to them. It's the way that they make money in that way. I read of a guy, and his name is um, Rogers Cadenhead. And Rogers Cadenhead was a guy who did this, and uh, Max Lucado tells a story about Rogers that actually I verified. I went out on, you know, online, and everything's true there, right? And I was able to discover <laughs> a story about him that's actually fascinating. And so he was a, a domain hoarder, and there was a moment where they were going to be, the Vatican was going to be selecting a new pope, and he, he got ahead of the game a little bit, and he said, okay, of all the people who would be potential popes, who would that might be? And so he went out and bought all the domain names with that, those popes' name in them with hopes that they would come to him uh, if they were picked, if he picked the right one. Well, he did. He hit the jackpot. He guessed the right one. So what happened was the Vatican called him up, and they found out that he's the one that had the domain name that they were looking for. So they called him up, and they said something like this, His Holiness... We'd like to know if you would be willing to sell this domain name, and they offered thousands of dollars for this domain name so that he could have that. 
But it turned out, Rogers Cadenhead, as he tells his story, he's a Catholic. And he wasn't sure about selling a domain name to the Pope and how that might measure out in his faith. (laughs) Instead, he told the folks on the Today Show where they were interviewing him, I told them, I don't want any money, but I I have three wishes. So he's like a genie, right? He's got three wishes. (laughs) Wish number one, I want one of those hats that the Pope wears. Okay, I actually wish I would have had a picture to show you that, but he wants one of those hats. So he was just thinking, what could he ask for? Wish number two, he wanted a three-day, two-night stay in the Vatican Hotel. They said, oh yeah, there's a hotel, there's a Vatican Hotel you can stay in, and he wanted that for free, that he could stay there. And wish number three, he says, I want complete absolution, no questions asked, for the third week in March, 1987. (laughs) kind of makes you wonder, what happened that week, right? (laughs) Why was so big that he would remember this? Because this was like 2006, something like that. Uh, And I was thinking about that. Or it makes me think of a time in my life when I had a week or maybe it was a month or a day or a season or a year or more um, that I regret. If there were surveillance video of your entire life, which moments would you most want to be destroyed that no one would actually have access to, to see? See, I, I, think, I think most of us have a third week of March 1987 somewhere in our past. I think that would be true. Well, King David did, and that's the episode we're going to look at today. Is his moment. The story is called David and Bathsheba. You may have heard of that. Movies have been made about it. Lots have been written about it. So I'm going to ask you to grab your message notes. They look like this. You can go ahead and pull them out, and you'll be able to follow along today. We're going to cover a lot of Bible today, actually four chapters of the Bible today. And and so we're going to look at this in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. That's where you want to turn your your Bible. And then all the notes will be here, all the Bible verses will be here to help you along as well. So today we're in one of the most famous accounts of King David's life, because we all know David and Goliath. We all know David and Bathsheba. You talk to people, they would be able to say they know those. It's a story... Uh, about a man who became king, and we've talked about this, and David being king. We've talked about the fact that he has his ups and downs. Last week, we looked at one of his up moments when he was uh, compassionate to Mephibosheth, and then today, we're going to look about uh, probably one of the lowest moments of David's life. He was real, but what happened was, is over time, he allowed himself to compromise his values. That's a word of warning for us. Over time, He slowly allowed himself to compromise his values until he ended up doing what was the unimaginable. He could have never dreamed that he would have done what he was going to do. I'm sure David, especially, could have never dreamed because he had been told he was a man after God's own heart. And I think that was an identity for him. But there's a possibility he took that for granted, that that's how God looked at him one day and that because looked at, God looked at him that way that day, that God would always look at him that way no matter what he did. In fact, he could actually do things that God would look and say, I wish you hadn't have done that, and he could still be a man after God's own heart. We're going to see today that he could actually do that. Here's a word of warning from us. This is from Rabbi Zacharias. He says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Not sobering, isn't it? But it's the truth. It's the truth. 
So let's consider this story today and how David took steps and uh, how he sinned, and then he took steps to cover up that sin, which actually made everything worse. And then there's a moment when it's actually exposed, and then he, at that time of exposure, he made the right choice. So that's what we're going to look at. So, okay, David's about 50 by now. And so he's, you know, aging. He's about 50. He's had a, a tough time, you know, as the times where he was running from Saul. And now he's, you know, defeated the enemies. They still have enemies they're going to battle against. But he's established you know, his home in Jerusalem. He has his palace there. Uh, he's been told he can't build the temple, but he's starting to make plans for the temple and, and uh, stockpile supplies for the day when the temple will actually be met. And so he's the undisputed king of Israel. He's ready to reap all the benefits of his hard work, and he comes to that place. The problem is, he began, as we're going to see today, he began to put his own comfort ahead of what was the wise thing for him to do. So let's just begin in verse 1, chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, so you know what, we're in the Iron Age here, and so you didn't fight in the winter because it was, you know, you get bogged down in uh, the winter elements and the mud and the snow if there was snow and it was cold and so you had to have a time to regroup and so they would regroup over winter and then they would go out against their enemies because this was a, a you know warring culture they would go with their enemies in the spring and the king would lead but instead it says here David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army and then it says this this is a key word but David remained in Jerusalem so David's sin is a result of bad decisions, and he made a series of bad decisions. And this was the first one, first one. Instead of leading his men in the spring conquest, for some reason, David chose, he says, I'm going to stay home, I'm going to chill, and I'm going to watch Netflix, okay? That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to do that. One commentator said this, and I love it, and I hope I can get it out in a way that you can understand it. If David would have been where David should have been, David wouldn't have been where David shouldn't have been, okay? <laughs> That's the idea. He should have been in war, but he wasn't. He was at home. He ended up where he shouldn't have been because of that. So as King David should be at battle, instead he's at home. It goes on to say this. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. So he woke up. He couldn't go back to sleep. Remember I said he's 50 or up. Those of you who are 50 or up know what this is like, right? You wake up in the night, you can't go back to sleep. So that's kind of what's happening. So he's walking around. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman is very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So it's at this moment that David needed the advice I read on Instagram this week. It was a post by Pastor Rick Warren, and he said this. It was just so simple. It was just a box, and it said this. It says, when temptation calls, hang up. <laughs> That's what David needed at this moment. Temptation's calling. This is his moment when he could have hung up, and he wouldn't have lived out what was about to happen. He went forward, and he gave in to the temptation that was before him. It says, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Now, I, scholars, commentators, this is what I read this week. This is the, you know, the way that they observe this, is that this portion right here about why she was on the roof and what she was doing was put here so that we would understand that Bathsheba was not 
out to seduce David. She was not out to seduce David or any other man who might have seen her on the roof bathing at this time. She was cleansing herself with water, and according to the Jewish law, after a menstrual cycle, a woman would cleanse herself, but it had to be with living water, and living water would come from a spring or from rain, and they would collect rain on the rooftops, and they would have a bathing pool, a cleansing pool, and she was up on the rooftop. She was cleansing herself after, after her menstrual period. And what we see here is not a woman who was being seductive, but we see a man who was abusing his power. He was abusing his power, and he took advantage of her, and he sexually exploited her, and as we see, he tried to use his power to cover it up. That's exactly what David is doing. And then it says, after their encounter, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So right now, David goes into panic mode. He's afraid of getting caught. He's thinking, how can I cover this up? How can I, how can I make sure that no one would know what happens? And he's thinking that he can you know, orchestrate things because he's king. He's a man of power and authority. That he can make things happen in a way that no one will know. So he comes up with a scheme. He comes up with a plan. And his plan was, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll bring Uriah home from the front where he's you know, fighting for me and my kingdom and I'll bring him home, and then what I'll do is I'll give him permission to go home, and he's not been with his wife, and so he'll go in, and then they'll know each other, as the Bible would say. And then uh, no one will know, but they may think that that's the moment that she got pregnant. So he brought, her home, brought Uriah home, but he didn't know that Uriah had such strong character and values, and so he would not go be with his wife because his soldiers were not able, to, his, his comrades, fellow soldiers were not able to have their wives or luxuries like this. And so he said, no, I'm going to stand by the king. I'm going to do my duty right here. So he didn't go. Uriah would have no part of it. So David's going, okay, now what do I do? So he comes up with another plan. He says, oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have my chef cook a five-star meal and I'm going to invite Uriah over and we're going to eat this five-star meal together and then we're going to drink shots together. And after we drink shots together for a while, he's going to be drunk. And in, in his drunkenness, he's going to be thinking, I want my wife. And so I'm going to send him home. And he's going to go back to his wife. And then they'll, have their, they'll know each other. And then they'll have their encounter. And then no one will know when she actually got pregnant. But once again, even Uriah in his drunkenness has better character than David. And he wouldn't go home. So David's like, now what do I do? Now what do I do? So he has plan C. He has plan C, and so it's one step after another, down, down, down. And plan C is, he said, I know what I'll do. I have to do this. I'm going to give a letter, and I'm going to send it to Joab, and I'm going to say to Joab, you need to put Uriah at the front of the battle, and then this is what I want you to do. I want you to pull the other soldiers back, and I want you to leave Uriah there, and so that Uriah will be killed. And that's what happened. That's exactly what he did. David now has committed murder, murder, adultery, murder, to cover up his sin. So this is what it says in verses 26 and 27. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then there's the key. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. That's a sobering statement, folks. 
That's a sobering statement. Here's what you need to learn from this, is that no matter who we are, God doesn't wink or overlook our sin. God doesn't weak at or overlook our sin. God holds us accountable for the sins that we commit. There is no secret sin. God sees all. He sees us as we are. He sees us for what we've done. But as we just sang, he loves us too much to leave us in hiding. So this is what happens going on to the next step. 2 Samuel 12, it says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. This is the Lord's mercy. This is, as we just sang, his reckless love, his wild grace. He's chasing David down, not to punish him, but so that David could be released from his failure. David could be released. So I just want you to remember this as we go through our time together today. God's pursuit of us is always based on God's love for us. His pursuit of us is always based on his love for us, that he loves David, and he loves you, and he's pursuing you. So Nathan comes to David, and so Nathan's approach to come to David, uh, he had been given inspiration, so he had, he, Nathan knew exactly what had happened, even the details, and so he comes to David, and so he's saying, okay, I could come in, and I could just pull out my guns and start shooting and tell him everything that he's done wrong, or I could tell him a story, and I think I'm telling the story. I'm going to weave it so that he's going to get caught up in it. So he starts telling him a story. He tells a story about a man who has a cherished little lamb. So the, it was the family lamb. Uh, let's just say they called him Lammy, and they loved Lammy, and Lammy you know, would eat with them, and they you know, li lived in their house and sleep with them, and it was just their treasured, one pet, treasured possession. Well, this man had a rich neighbor. And the rich neighbor had so many cattle and sheep that he didn't know what to do with all that he had. All that he had. And he had a guest come to town that he wanted to entertain. So what this rich man did is he instructed his hired thugs to take little lammy from his neighbor, from this man, from this family, so he could kill it, cook it, serve it in a stew. That's exactly what he did. Kill it, cook it, serve it in a stew for his guest. Well, David heard this, and David burned with anger, the Bible says, against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity I remember one time when I was first starting to be a pastor, and I took a class uh, that was on awareness and uh, helping people and caring, and uh, one of the things the guy talked about is he says that he could go to a church, and uh, if the pastor had sin in his life, over time he could tell what that sin was by what the pastor ranted against. How much energy he gave to certain topics or certain issues. I thought, well, that's just fascinating. Well, that's exactly what happened here. So David gets all self-righteous here. He gets all self-righteous about what is done. And then what happened was after he spewed out his self-righteous judgment, Nathan cut him to the quick. And Nathan said, you are the man. Whoo, can you imagine What's going on is these two are together. You 
or the man. Oh, my goodness. See, Nathan has a lot of guts here because David could have anyone killed he wanted. He could have done away with Nathan at this point. And then Nathan spoke for God. And similar to 2 Samuel 7, when, Nathan, when David wanted to build the temple for God, and God said, well, let me tell you all the grace that you've received from me. He does similar here. So God says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. If this is all too little, I would have even given you more. Can you imagine as David's hearing this and what God was doing for him and what God would continue to do for him? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. This is consequence because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. I don't know how David, because he's probably sitting on his throne right now because he thought this was a judicial matter. And all of a sudden, he's the one being judged. God's saying, look, David, look what I've done for you. Look at what I've given you. What were you thinking? You took what wasn't yours. You ignored the rules of relationship with me. And then in an act of, act of desperation, you committed murder to cover up your sins. So right now, folks, David is at the point of decision. The point of decision. This is the tipping point for the entire story. The question is, Will David turn to God and to the light, or will David give in to evil and turn to the dark side? That's the question right now. David could have chosen either path. He's the king. What will he do? So then David said to Nathan at that moment, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. That's it, folks. That's what made David a man after God's own heart. It wasn't that he was perfect. It was that when he did fail, he was willing to admit his failure and that he was a sinner and that he needed God's grace. Oh, this is a problem for so many of us in our culture today. See, a lot of people, they have a hard time believing that they're sinners, right? No one wants to be called a sinner or admit that they are. A mistaker made me. You know, I'm a mistaker or an oopser. You know, I made oops, oops, there we go, but there I go again, but not a sinner. So folks, in order for us to release the guilt of our failure, we must admit, we must confess that we have sinned. We're going to get to this in just a little bit. And when we do this, this is how God responds. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die because of what you did, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son will... The son born to you will die. And you can go on and read about this at the end of chapter 12. See, sin always has a consequence, in case you don't you know, wonder if it does. Always. And, but God's grace is there to cover up the guilt, cover up the guilt for the sin. But grace does not take away the consequence for the sin. It does not take the consequence away. And even though David chooses the correct response, he responded correctly at this moment, he will know, and you can read about this in the 
you know, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, you can read about this, that he will know great, fam- great pain because of what he committed, of the sin he committed. His family will know great pain. John Owen, a Puritan, said it this way, be, kill- be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing it or it will be killing you. So remember this, your sin doesn't just affect you. When you sin, it affects the people around you and potentially your family, and even for generations as well. So before we move on, we're going to read some of his journal entries now about this season uh, to kind of you know, help us to understand our response. Before we do that, I just want to read a quote to you because some of us, we're tempted right now to say, Ah, David, I'd never do what he did. If God had done all that for me, I would never do what David did. And we would sit in judgment. And we'd say, how could God have done this? And I'm going to just ask if you let these words from Pastor Tim Keller just kind of resonate with us today. And I think this is a gut hit. The seeds of the most terrible possible atrocities, the capability of the worst possible deeds, live in every human heart, even the best people, even people who were converted by God. Whoever you are, even the best people who have ever lived are capable of this. The seeds of those things, the seeds of the worst possible deeds are right now in your heart. They're in your heart. That's scary. I agree. And this story is showing us that the seeds of evil, when they're placed in the right soil and they're watered, they sprout. And they grow into plants that have fruit and can hurt us. They'll become acts of evil. The kind of evil we see in this story, the kinds of evil we see in the news every day. When seeds are planted and watered and fertilized, they grow. And if it's a seed of evil, then that is what will grow. And we all have the seed of evil within us, folks. Every one of us. Now, with that in mind, what I want to do is how do we respond How did we release our failure? We're going to look at his journal entries that he wrote during the season. He wrote two psalms specifically about this season, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And so I'm going to talk about how David proceeded. What did he do when he was feeling this darkness that had come upon him because of his sin? And what did he do after God called him out on this? And so there's three things. First one is this. When I find myself in this place, if I'm going to release myself from my failure, I must cry out to God in confession. I must cry out to God in confession. So there was about a year, probably about a year between the time when uh, David had Uriah killed and Nathan came to David. Somewhere about a year, it's time, something like that, because he had had a little baby in this time, a little baby boy. And so during that year, David had to live with the oppressive guilt of what he had done. And scholars believe Psalm 32 was written about that year. So that journal entry is about what he felt during that time. And this is what he says in that journal entry, verses 3 through 5. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged, underline that, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and then you forgave me the guilt of my sin. See, David doesn't excuse himself. He doesn't defend himself. 
There's no blame shifting going on here. No finger pointing. No family of origin stuff happening that's creeping up here. He owns it. He owns it. And he immediately gets down on his face before God and he confesses his sin. And so, folks, it's so important for us to know that it's God who's chasing David down. David's in hiding. David's in the darkness. David thinks that no one, has, no one sees except him what has happened. Bathsheba knows, but no one else. And so David feels like he is not redeemable. But God's chasing him. God's coming after him. And so oftentimes when we're in that place where we know we've sinned, we know that we are, and we're feeling the guilt or the residue of that sin, what happens to us is we feel oftentimes that if, we, if God is chasing us down, he's chasing us down with lightning bolts. You know, he's going to zap us. He's going to zing us in some way. He's going to hurt us in some way. Uh, but God, no, is a loving, kind merciful and gracious God. I heard it said this way. I think it describes it very well. Religion says, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I better call dad and call quickly. And that's exactly where David was. He was calling out to God in confession. Next, cry out to God for cleansing. Cry out to God for cleansing. So now we're going to go to Psalm 51. If you want to see something that I think depicts this really well, I was looking at the art wall out across from the restrooms, and one of our artists has painted a picture of this scene and what David was feeling as he wrote Psalm 51. I thought she did a really good job of understanding this. This is what it says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And transgression is rebellion against God. So that's trans, rebelled against God. Wash away my iniquity and iniquity is guilt. So I'm feeling guilt for what I've done and cleanse me from my sin. And you know, sin means I've missed God's ideal. I've missed the mark. I've not obeyed what he said. For I know my transgressions and my sin, my cosmic treason is always before me against you, you only. So no one else. Now we know that other people have been hurt, but He's saying here that sin is against God. You, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. I just want to say to you today, I'm going to say this, and I hope you hear me. If you're watching online, I hope you can hear this too. I hope you understand this, that every one of us, you don't have to go forward one second in this life, one second in this life carrying the residue for your sin. Satan wants to, wants you to carry it, so he entices you with temptation. Then when you give in, he tells you how good it's going to be. Then he tells you how bad you are after you do it. And so he wants you to carry the residue of sin with you, but you do not have to do that. You can be free of the feelings of guilt and shame and failure, and you can release those as you cry out to God for cleansing. And then the third is this. I cry out to God for renewal. I cry out to God for renewal. We're going to go on and read verses 8 through 12. So now what he's saying, he's calling out to God, and he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Now, did God crush his bones? No. The sin crushed his bones. The sense that he had 
disappointed God that he was in hiding. And he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Underline this, create. That means from nothing. Create in me a pure heart. So there's nothing he could do. Only God can do it. Oh, God. And renew. Underline. Renew a steadfast or firm or loyal or willing spirit within me. Help me to want to do, help me to want to be with you again, in other words. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, underline, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not restore his salvation. He didn't lose his relationship. He had lost the joy of the relationship and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David was saying this. He's saying, God, the only way, the only way I'm going to have a pure heart and be a man after your heart as you've called me to be is if you do something supernatural within me, I can't do this on my own. I need your power and I need your strength. And then he goes on, verses 16 and 17, and says this. Here's how I know know that, because you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you, God, will not despise. So what David is saying here, and maybe this is freeing for some of us at this moment today, is that when we fail, God is not wanting us to do something to earn his favor. Do something to be renewed. Do something to be cleansed. Do something so that we have the kind of heart that we all want to have towards God, to earn his forgiveness. What he wants us to do instead is to step into the forgiveness that's already available. Step into it. It's made possible by mercy and grace as we step into that. All God needs is our brokenness before him. He wants us to cry out. He wants us to confess. He wants us to cry out. He wants us to ask him to cleanse us. He wants us to cry out, create. Create in me a new heart. Once again, I want to read Tim Keller. He's talking about this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. More sinful than we ever dared believe. Every one of us is capable of doing what David did. Every one of us has the seed inside. But at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. See, the the beauty of the story, for me, is it's about King David. It's about his failure. But what it shows us in this story, it shows for every one of us that no one, no matter what we've done, is beyond God's grace and redemption. No one. No one. Not David, not you, no matter what you've done. No one is beyond his grace. No one is beyond his mercy. Then God can use us when we come before him and we were clean before him and we've released our failure. God can use us. How do we know that? We know that by David. You know that by David. Just go to the New Testament. You know, David's in the New Testament. It's a good sign that God's using him. You can read in Matthew chapter one, it says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of David. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have the heroes of the faith, the greatest of the faith. Guess who is in that list of the greatest of the faith? David. You go to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, it talks about David. 
It talks about how he was the one who, through his descendant, Jesus, he was, Jesus Christ was from his lineage, and because he was descendant, he came, and that David fulfilled all of his purposes for which he was born. Simply because he trusted God, he trusted what God wanted to do, that God wanted to forgive him. God took a sinful man like David, and he brought from David the family of God. He brought Jesus Christ, our salvation. And I'll just say it this way, no one of us is too big of a mess up for God to use. No one of us. God's reckless love is wild, and he's coming after you. So we're going to move into a time of communion now. Our ushers are going to move into place. And as we do that, I'm going to have us read a verse. It's going to be on the screens here from 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to ask our ushers if they go ahead and get into their spots and be ready here because I want to pray after this. And I'm just going to ask if we can. Let's just read this out loud together, okay, before we enter into this time of communion. It says this. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I'm going to take a moment to pray. God, I just thank you so much for the truth of your word. And I pray for us in the room that, as I said, no one has to carry residue. No one has to carry sin today. No one has to be unforgiven. No one has to have guilt today. If you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, you can do it right now today. Say, yes, I want to receive forgiveness and cleansing from you, Jesus. And God, the rest of us can just sit here today, and maybe you're in a place where you say, you know, I can do an inventory, and there's no sin in my life. There's no seed that's sprouting. There's no seed that's forming fruit. I think that as clearly as I can tell, I'm close to God. If that's you, praise God. But for most of us, there's something happening. There's something happening inside that's been going on, whether it's a lust or whether it's uh, envy or whether it's greed or whether it's jealousy or whether it's hatred or whether it's judgment or whether it's all down the list of things that may be in our soul, God, that you want to set us free from today. May we rest in you. May we let it go today. And we thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so ushers are going to serve, and as they serve, they're going to pass the trays around, and you're going to have opportunity to take a piece of the cracker. And I'll just say this, it's all gluten-free today. Okay, just so you know. And then we'll have juice as well. And then take that and hold it. We're going to have a wonderful song that Kevin's going to sing, because we think about this, I was reminded of this during our talk through this morning, is that reckless love is all about God chasing me down. We're going to hear a song now about me chasing God down, running after him for his forgiveness and his love.
Bible says when we run to him that he's there, he's waiting, he's waiting for us, waiting with grace, waiting with mercy. He wants you to be free of that event that you're thinking of from the third week of March, 1987, whatever it is, he wants you to be free because if you're not free, you're not free. You're not able to walk in joy. David said, restore the joy, the joy of my salvation. That I don't have to carry residue, that I don't have to carry the sense that I've disappointed God in some way. I can walk forward. He gave us Jesus so that we could be free. Not from our works, but by, by what Jesus has done for us on the cross that we are set free. So we're going to have this time of communion now to thank Jesus, to remember him. He asked us to do this so that we could recall what he's done for us. And so on the night before he was crucified, before he went to the cross, he said that he broke bread and he said, this bread is my body. It's been bro- it will be broken for you. Take the punishment that was due you upon myself. And he says, eat this and remember me. Jesus. He then took a cup and he poured juice and he said that this represents my blood which will be shed for you. It seals the covenant. Seals the deal. You can know forgiveness. You don't have to work to earn it. Guaranteed. Because I shed my blood for you. Let's drink this and let's thank him. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity today. Pray that this would be a day that we just never forget. This is a story about David, but it's a story about us. But really, it's a story about you and your grace and your mercy and how you want to share that with us. You want us to know your love. But not just us. There's a whole world living in sin and guilt and shame. I pray that we would be even more relentless in our pursuit of them so that they would know you as well. Be able to experience the freedom that we talked about today that we want to walk into as we leave here. And we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.